Hey guys, welcome back to another Trail Science episode. I'm your host, M. Robertson, and I'm so stoked that you're tuning in. Before we get started, I thought to add a little bit of a disclaimer. Uh, at the start of this episode, we spend quite a bit of time talking about what systematic reviews are, how this sort of research is structured, and why it's important to know all of this when looking at the results that this sort of research gives us. So bear with us, we do get stuck into injury risk factors a bit later on, and by that stage you'll be well versed in how to understand systematic reviews. I hope you guys enjoy the episode. Guys, welcome back to our first Trail Science episode for 2024. Um, once again, Simon Duvall from Rooted in Dirt is joining us. And this year, we're going to continue to dive into some interesting topics and research that surround our, our great sport. And today, we're going to be taking a look at injury risk factors and trail running. Um, we're going to be focusing on a systematic review. We're going to go into what that is, why it's important, um, how that body of research is yeah, really needed and something that is valuable and we can benefit from if kind of looked at and applied correctly. And the one we'll be taking a look at is by one of our favorite researchers, Carl Fulian. Um, So if he's listening, we love your research. <laughs> um, yeah. And injury risk factors, I mean, why this topic? So I think injury in sports, especially something like trail running, is a real when and not if scenario, unfortunately. I think there are few people who can take part in a sport uh, for years on end without experiencing at least one one injury. So we wanted to get into this, understand what the risk factors are, um, what are things that we can kind of do to avoid or just at least minimize the risk of um getting an injury or, or even just reduce the severity of it. So that is what, yeah, we want to get into. Um, I feel uh, like I want to laugh because Simon and I have had our fair share of <laughs> injuries. So Very Simon, true. typical trail or welcome, Simon, excited to have you um, and to yeah, pick Thank your brain you. about the systematic review. So typical trail running injury is what are we, what are we looking at? Um, what do we want to highlight We've got acute and chronic yeah. injuries, but yeah, let's just get into a bit of what injuries are and how they're defined. Yeah, I think that the one of the big challenges with um, injury research is is that very thing, Emily, is the definition thereof, and so um, it's it typically depends kind of study to study what kind of definition you use. Um, typically, you might have injury defined by time loss. So have you lost any time in training or, or playing matches or racing to the injury? Uh, so that would be one kind of way that you can look at uh, defining whether you've been injured or not is have you lost any, any time and how much time? Uh, another thing that typically is is accounted for is the severity of the injury yeah so if you had a, an ankle sprain for example or muscle strain it might be graded as a one two or three uh, injury uh, or level of injury and that normally talks about kind of how the fibers of the muscle or the musculoskeletal tissue have been disrupted uh, one being mild and three being a full separation which which might require surgery and obviously yeah. that has ramifications for how how long you might spend out as well um 
You also see injuries defined by uh, mechanism. In other words, how did they occur? What happened uh, that led to the injury? Um, so it's it's complex and complicated. Some injury studies include illness, for example, um, in in their definition. The IOC, the International Olympic Committee, actually came out with a consensus statement uh, not too long ago, I think about 2020, maybe 2021, to try and help narrow down uh, what the definition of injury should be. So the valuable thing with uh, international organizations or, or committees like that coming out with consensus statements on what something is is that you have a reference point so if you were doing yeah. a, a research study of your own you could say right this is the definition that i'm using it's the ioc's definition um, and that means that when you're trying to compare kind of article to article or across different uh, research um, areas or environments that you can do a fair comparison a like-for-like -like comparison but that's not to say that all researchers use that definition. Um, so it's really a, a, a complex environment. Uh, you mentioned acute and chronic injuries, and those are two kind of areas that I do a fair amount of, of research in, or at least supervising in. Um, and I think there's a, there's a big perception by the average person, the average Joe, that trail runners suffer from a lot of acute injuries. So an acute injury is a, um, something that happens because of either like a, an impact potentially, or acute means a, it's a kind of time frame. So it's a relatively yeah. short, uh, what happened quite suddenly, let's say. Um, so it could be a fall. It could be an acute injury. could be a, a rupture of a tendon or something like that with due to high force. You see that in, in, high intensity sports um it does happen hamstring ruptures things like that acl ruptures things like that in, in rugby maybe or something like that um and i think there's a perception out there that a lot of trail runners suffer from acute injuries uh falling spraining ankles because they screaming down mountain slopes <laughs> or whatever the case is yeah and I'm sure a lot of trail runners will uh, have suffered from from acute injuries at some point in their in their lives, um, but I'm also pretty sure they they like to milk that part and say, "Oh yeah, I do an extreme sport." You know, um, we're not all Kylian Jornet doing like alpine. <laughs> I don't know on these ridge lines with thousand foot drops on both sides. Um, I think a lot of trail running is is relatively relatively safe um, if yeah. you know what you're doing. I've, yes. I've sprained my ankle more doing other things than trail running. Um, yeah. So acute injuries do happen. Um, I think they are, we'll dive into the article that we are reviewing today in a little bit, but the acute injuries that you're more likely to suffer as a trail runner are, are injuries related to not taking care of your body while you're actually participating. Um and not being adequately prepared for the demands of running on a mountain or running in a natural environment, um, rather than falls and sprains and things like that. They do happen, of course, um, they yeah. happen. but the, the other one is the chronic injury. So chronic injury is defined by a repetitive overuse type injury. So uh, something where the 
the mechanism of injury is because of or owing to the constant repetitive cycle of a movement. So yeah. you hear of things like runner's knee uh, would be one. It's because there's constant flexion and extension at the knee joint uh, when you run. And that puts kind of strain on the, the ligaments, the joints, the musculature um, around the knee. Um, you hear it's not only runner's knee. You might have heard of something called tennis elbow. For example, it's called yeah. tennis elbow because because people who do overhead activities, overhead exercise repetitively, and that yeah. could be anything from kind of Olympic lifting or things like that to uh, tennis, obviously playing tennis, serving, um, kind of your ground strokes, those those sorts of movements. But it's the re repetitive nature of them that leads to wear and tear at the joints normally. Um so yeah, I think we'll we'll dive into the research. But what I see, and I don't know with maybe with your clients, you can jump in there and see. Let me know what kind of typical injuries you see. But what I see is is kind of uh, tendonitis, tendinopathies like might be Achilles or yeah, could be hip flexors or something like that, um, or even around the knee. Um, yeah, I see like fasciitis, plantar fasciitis is is relatively common um shin splints which is kind of generalized pain anterior portion of the of the lower leg yeah uh, so those are kind of common examples I mean, i've heard of people who get stress fractures i don't know if you've had any that's clients wild. that have had stress fractures those are you know and that's also from that kind of um branch of of injury mechanism yeah um and those are more much more common much more prevalent in all types of running it's not just not just trail running road running marathon yeah. running um the chronic repetitive overuse type injury those are the ones that we typically see uh with the highest incidence in in this cohort yeah and mostly hips as you said ankles um but so often what happens is you have kind of an acute injury that then becomes chronic. You know, once you've done an ankle really badly, um, screaming down a trail, then it does tend mm. to be kind of a continued risk factor. So making sure that's protected. Um, yeah, but more. Yeah, well, more I think if you, if you tear, like if you tear some ankle tendons, um, which can happen, a sprained ankle, right? Um, the the question is are you giving it enough time to heal and are yes. you doing your recovery work and your rehab to yeah. strengthen the musculature around that joint so that the next time you go out for a run uh you're not going to exacerbate the issue and it becomes some sort yeah. of a chronic problem yeah um, and i think so lucky in the sense the chronic injuries that i see are if you most of the time if you're working with the right professional giving them enough time to heal it's kind of a bit of problem solving and then that's that's done um yeah i've i've actually yeah. lucky luckily in the last year my my people haven't had too much too much of that but yeah i think in our recovery time we did speak about that uh even just in training for in our previous episode um the obligatory kind of ultra athletes are you recovering enough between yeah. training or, or is your chronic injury as a result of you running on something that is um kind of really painful so a common example is shin splints people trying to run through that i don't know how you can i've tried yeah. it's very sore um so the, the challenges with that is like a lot of runners run with pain um yeah and there's a lot of like fast fix gimmick type things where people will say oh you need to do x and it will it will get rid of your 
um, your injury, you know, uh, and, and I, I don't want to sound like anti-science here, so don't please don't uh, hate me for this, but things like change your shoe type or go from a neutral to a pronator shoe or change from rear foot to forefoot or forefoot to rear foot or or go barefoot or in increase or decrease your cadence. You, know, you hear a lot of this kind of yeah. um, uh, rhetoric going around and this is going to be this is going to solve your your problems and the reality is that if you're running through an injury you are only going to exacerbate it and the the number one thing that you can do to uh kind of alleviate the symptoms and get better is to stop running i hate to say it yeah. <laughs> um reduce the load whether it's a complete you know it might not require that you completely stop but reduce the running load um and start to uh kind of rehabilitate that joint or that area of the body um and and so we need to be careful i think when we dive into this research around uh trying to oversimplify the injury complex it's yeah. a really uh, challenging kind of topic to to address and as you mentioned earlier we're more in the business of injury reduction rather than injury prevention as both of our supervisors uh professor renal fenter would say <laughs> yes. there's no such thing as uh injury prevention you can't prevent injuries but you can hopefully reduce the risk yeah um and yeah so one of the kind of um research articles that we haven't dived into but maybe for those who are interested in in this area is by Joss van Rentegem it's published in 2017 I think and it's to do with a novel framework for training load monitoring so typically or one of the things that we can control as coaches or even as athletes uh, who are maybe looking after our own training one of the things that we can control is how much we run and how fast we run yeah and so you can you can collect data um i enjoyed your previous podcast with is it alan yeah alan, alan rob yeah rob. yeah and he was talking about you know how he kept a a ledger or diary when he was training and um you know that was many many years ago and now we have fancy watches and all of these things to do that for us so we're kind of quite lazy and quite lucky um but one of the things that we can control is is how much we do and uh yeah the um the article by Justin Rentigham and, and colleagues talked about defining training load a little bit differently so normally when a when a coach prescribes load they would prescribe it in the form of distance or time so like how far you should run or how long you should run for um, and that would be an example of external training load which you can then monitor you can gather that information um, and then the other type of load is internal training load which is how your body responds to that external load so that would be what's commonly recorded is heart rate um, and all of our kind of science, I suppose, around training, planning, and how we should put programs together is, is based off of time, um, time and attention, time spent training, and heart rate response. But what Van Rentgen kind of 
proposed with a with a novel load monitoring framework is to look at the physiological load adaptation pathway and the biomechanical load adaptation pathway as separate to one another. So the biomechanical load adaptation pathway is your muscles and joints. What actually happens to yeah. the musculoskeletal system when it is loaded? Um, there's bone stress, for example. There's wear and tear on the, the joints, the cartilage, uh, the ligaments. There's disruption of the muscle fibers. Um, and that would be biomechanical load. And then you get physiological load, which is the cardiovascular system, um, the endocrine response, the changes in um, kind of cortisol or testosterone, creatine kinase, uh, blood lactate, uh, heart rate, that, that happens when we train as well, and how that returns back to, to normal, to homeostasis after, after training. So that, that heart rate recovery is something that we use to measure how well adapted a, an athlete is for endurance sports. Um, and so Van Rentekem said, well, these adaptation pathways are actually quite different. And it actually takes the biomechanical load adaptation pathway, your skeleton, your joints, your muscles, takes that longer to recover than your physiological load adaptation pathway. So if we plan our training only around the physiological load adaptation pathway, the time and the heart rate, and we yeah. are not measuring what's happening to um the biomechanical load adaptation pathway, we might actually be compounding fatigue. We might think, oh, the person is ready to train again. But biomechanically, the mechanical load is actually getting progressively more and more. And, and that often leads to these kind of repetitive use injuries. And that's what certainly that's what I think we're seeing. Yeah. Um, of course, it's difficult to measure biomechanical load adaptation pathway variables. You are getting um, wearable technology now accelerometry that can give you an estimate of things like bone stress, for example. Um, we're seeing things like the, the stride meters I mentioned earlier, which tell you a little bit about power, yeah. um, which you can kind of extrapolate back to uh, forces and then the, the vertical ground reaction forces that you're being exposed to. So we, we're getting there, but those things are hard to, uh, to measure. Um, so it it's a really, really complex yeah. um, a uh, topic. Uh, hopefully, that's you know been been a little bit of of background into uh, what we're going to uh, dive into. Yeah, and just why it's important. And I think Simon, this sort of research and even just the systematic review structure is becoming more important, needed as the sport grows. And I think something I took out of this this article was that. Um, there's been a 15% increase in participation in trail running over the last decade, which that's, yeah. that's great. It's, the, it's growing. That's what we want to see. Um, yeah. Trail culture. Yeah. That's the so whole with more, thing going for. Exactly. With more people in the mountains, um, uh, more people in outdoors and, and in nature, obviously that's, that's a net positive, but it also means that there's probably more injuries uh, yes. because there are more people doing the, the exercise. And so we yeah. need to, uh, the first kind of, when you do injury studies, the first points of reference or the starting point is to assess what the problem is and the extent of the problem. So yeah. once you kind of get an understanding of what is the problem and what is the extent of the problem, for example, for South African listeners will be uh, the World Rugby Project around um, concussion. Yeah. So they did, the World Rugby did a huge uh, global project on um, 
What is the incidence of concussion at various levels of the game? What are some of the, what's the epidemiology? What are the risk factors that lead to concussion? And they've figured out that it was a lot to do with contact. It was scrumming, uh, rucking, mauling, but also in, in the tackle. And it wasn't actually the um, person being tackled who was at the greatest risk. It was the tackler and the person making the tackle who was at the greatest risk. And so they, they did kind of a really extensive study into what is, what is the biggest issue in rugby. And, and they realized that concussion is the biggest issue. Um, yeah. And now they, they say it's about kind of putting an intervention in place. So with the popularity of trail running, let's try and find out what the biggest issues are. Once we're yeah. certain that we know what they are, let's put some measures in place to reduce those those risks from from happening. Yeah. Um, and and then we and then we measure again. Have have we had an impact? Yes or no? Um, yeah. And that kind of guides the the process in injury research. Yeah. And that the the main issues are not always what you've heard. Um, like for reading yeah. this, we're going to talk about that tr- weekly kind of training volume is not the be all and end all and the start and finish of every injury um, at all. So no, that's, and that's no. a big, you have this association of more is more equals injury, which is not exactly true. Um, yes. So, yeah. So, so another good reading for, for your listeners or a good person to, to um, go and read up on, if you're interested in, in this area is Tim Gabbett, um, Australian. And um, he's kind of one of the gurus in workload monitoring. And um, he talked about the injury prevention paradox where you would think that having a lower load, so talking about weekly volume, you would think that having a a lower weekly volume would reduce your risk of injury, but that's not the case. Um, If you go and kind of look at the, the, um, the literature, what you'll find is that people who do higher um, loads more weekly volume there's also a protective element to that so repeated exposure to high loads means your body is able to tolerate future training the demands of future training and the bigger issue with with workload is how you make changes to your load so whether you're doing big volume or or low volumes are you somebody who progressively structures your your training um, to be kind of wise and smart about progressive overload or small deloads to um, to stimulate recovery in the body? Um, or are you somebody who will do nothing for a couple of weeks and then go on the weekend and run uh, 50K and then, yeah. you know, run for a little bit in the next week and then do nothing again? And then so typically people who have large fluctuations in weekly training loads are the ones who are at risk of injury. It's yeah. not, you know, having, it's not necessarily having a low load or having a high load. It's how do you plan and progress your training over time? Yeah. And Simon, to kind of get into our our article and what we want to talk about is, I mean, you've got experience in this area. So a systematic review, let's talk about why we chose that. What is it? Um, why is yeah. The, that uh, style of data collection different to normal, um, that methodology different, and yeah, yeah. talk to us about yeah. That, about so that. I, I try and keep this simple because it can get a little bit complex. Um, but the specific article that that we're going to cover today is um, 
It's called or titled Trail Running Injury Risk Factors, a Living Systematic Review. Just to confuse us a little bit more, we've got the word living in there. Yeah. Um, which I as saw that. far as which as as far as I can understand, it's basically just an agreement that they have to update this um systematic review kind of every six months for for five years, a set period yeah. of time. So it's not it's not just a once-off, it's living, it's changing. They're gonna continue to update um that article with the uh, the publishing house. Um, so it, it's by Cardiff Yun and then a whole host of others. So forgive me if I if I don't go through all of them. Um, and it was published in 2022. So it's nice and recent. Um, and as you said, it's a systematic review. Um, so systematic review is slightly different to a typical original research article. Um, if you wanted to do your own research in some of the injury risk factors. I've actually had a student, uh, Harry van Vleek, who who uh, graduated with his master's degree uh, from the University of Stellenbosch kind of maybe two years ago now. Um, really good biokineticist, so shout out to, to Harry. Um, yeah. I think he's working in Cape Town at the moment. Um, yes. And um, Carlo Fulgen was actually his examiner. I don't know if you know that, Emily, um, oh, which is really wow. cool to have. Carl on that, so he gave some really good insights to to Harry, and that was really good. So Harry was also interested as a biokineticist in um, trail running injuries, and so we decided to do a prospective, so an original research study, a prospective study where um, he would monitor trail runners over a six month period, and they had to every two weeks fill out a self report injury um, kind of questionnaire, if you will, online. Uh, questionnaire and yeah. they'd have to say how much training they've done have they suffered from any injuries and we rec recorded things like time loss severity um uh where on the body did it happen can you describe the injury you know all those kinds of things to try and identify certain certain risk factors so that would be an original research study you go out you collect some data um and you report on that and you, you see if you can find any associations between i don't know sex or gender and injury or weekly training volume and injury etc cetera, etc cetera. um a systematic review and, and so those kinds of studies the one like harry's are called primary sources of information so we're going right to the source um, to see what do they find and then we are taking that into our, into consideration as as academics as scientists as practitioners um a systematic review is a secondary source of information. It's more like a textbook than uh, a research article where the authors have gone through a rigorous process of screening original research articles and then creating a synthesis of information. So Carl yeah. Yun and, and colleagues were clearly interested in what are the risk factors for injury um, amongst trail runners? But they didn't want to go and do their own research project. And Cardell has done his own research in this area. Um, they wanted to go and say, right, well, there are probably dozens of articles out there, maybe hundreds, maybe thousands of articles out there in this area of running and injury. So can we go and find out what are all the articles out there? Um, and then whittle them down so they use a very systematic process to whittle the articles down to the final sample that they will then describe and include in their systematic review 
Um, one of the processes is not the one that they used um, in, in this article, but it's one that I've used in the past is called Prisma. It's the preferred reporting items for systematic reviews and meta-analyses. Um, and it's basically um, gu a guideline on how you go from whittling down from you know, a number of different articles to um, your final sample for your systematic review. So when you start the process, you need to identify as many articles as, as possible. Yeah. So you might start, like when, you, when you're searching for these articles, you might go into Google Scholar, for example. You, you need to go into a number of databases to, for it to be classified as a systematic review. But Google Scholar, maybe you go on there and you say, I'm going to search for trail running and injury. And if you just search trail running and injury on Google Scholar, you'll get hundreds of articles. So that's how you start to identify. Maybe you see that that's to maybe that's not broad enough or maybe it's too broad so if it's not broad enough you might throw you know trail running or mountain running and injury so now you've kind of broadened what you're looking at um if it was too too uh, narrow you know you you might want to um uh, maybe you want to change it to trail running and chronic injury or musculoskeletal injury instead of just injury. Maybe injury is too kind of broad or too general. So you go through this process of kind of first identifying as many articles as possible, and then you have to screen those articles. So you yeah. have to go and read through. First, you would just read through all the titles and you'd kind of throw out <laughs> the ones that you don't think um, are going to help you answer your question, which in this case is what are the risk factors. And um, then once you've kind of thrown out the ones just based on their title, you go and read all the abstracts. So that would then whittle it down to even fewer articles. So read all the abstracts. Once you've read all the abstracts, you then go and read the full text of the articles. And then you kind of finally get to the number of articles that you'll include for your systematic review. And that can vary depending yeah. on the, the, research, the area of research could be, in my case, I think it was eight or nine um, when I did my physiological indicators of, of trail running performance. In the case of this article, I think it was 19, if I'm not uh, mistaken. Yeah, but I've seen systematic I've seen systematic reviews that have dozens of articles in them. Um, so it depends on how much research is being done in that space, depends yeah. on your research questions. But what is really important is that the the authors must document exactly what process they've gone through to get to these articles that they are have included so that's really important so that when we read it as as scientists or academics or practitioners that we know how do they get to this final sample we don't want them to we don't want there to be any bias for example in how they've chosen um, their articles maybe they've got this is something that you do see in, not in, in this case of course but let's for instance say uh, one of these authors had a vested interest in showing that trail running has high injury incidence because maybe they run a practice um, where, you know, they stand to benefit from getting clients in their practice. And so they they pick and choose the articles that show that there's a high injury incidence, if that makes sense. So you've got to be yeah. careful um, when, when you're interpreting the findings that there's a, a low level of bias in terms of, of how these authors got to their final uh, sample. Yeah. And so that how trust how trustworthy the information is from the systematic review depends on the rigor of the systematic process that they've used yeah. um, and how well they've kind of documented that. And then also the quality of the works 
that the authors have cited because Cardiff Union and colleagues they ended up with with 19 um, different articles they they used a um a measure of quality of the articles and this is quite common in systematic reviews as well they then independently went and assessed the level of evidence provided in each of the articles so i think two or three of the authors did that independently and they kind of ranked whether they thought that they were of a good level of evidence or not yeah. uh, they used something called the, the oxford center of evidence-based medicine uh, that, that model. I haven't used it myself, but that's what they used. Um, and then again, from a screening perspective, they would have thrown out anything that was maybe below a certain level. So I think they only included level one and two um, kind of level studies as opposed to level three to five. So I think yeah. there's like kind of five levels of, of evidence. Um, so yeah, it's it's a it's a very kind of organized structured approach to to getting that those primary sources and then you've got to your job is to then describe and find like a synthesis of ideas and findings across all of those different articles yeah and with that what makes this cool and we're going to get into some of the results for what are the the injury risk factors and and why this is important for or like trail runners if you've you've come across something like this, you're searching for specific information is the eligibility criteria that these researchers used was also incredibly specific. Um, There was broadness to it in terms of they selected everything from short trail distances all the way through to your ultra marathons. So um, like the sub marathon distance was also included, which is great. Um, It's not just an ultra focus, but one of the main things was that the, there's a, there are a lot of definitions for what trail running is, uh, but they kind of criteria was it has to meet um, the ITRA definition, which in summary is that no less than, uh, there shouldn't be more than 20% paved surface uh, on uh, to be defined as a trail run. And they didn't really yeah. make any kind of confinements to elevation or distance, which is cool. As I said, for the races that they included, it was everything from short to, to ultra. And then, for the non-race studies, again, the the participants had to kind of be clearly defined as as trail runners. Yeah, um, yeah there was criteria for that. Yeah, I so... think that it's good, um, but it it also shows that they had to cast quite a wide net. So you know the yeah. fact that they've included they've included people who who run kind of sub marathon distances and people who run maybe ultras probably goes to show that there's not that much research out there. I know this is a growing field. You talked about the fact that more and more people are doing this, but there aren't hundreds of articles out there to choose from. Yeah. Um, so probably what would be more valuable to us as, as practitioners and, and coaches is, is to have a clearer picture of what's happening to like an ultra runner population versus what's happening yes. to a, a short runner population. But unfortunately there's not enough information yet or yeah. for them to be able to look at it in that minute detail. So I think they did kind of cast their net quite wide um, to account yeah. for that. Um, and that. And that might also lead to some challenges in, in interpreting the data. Um, but yes, they they did use, you know, pretty standard and good eligibility criteria in my view. Um, yeah. I'm quite happy with what they've done. And that kind of casting the wide net could be a, a limitation Um of of the study, I know Simon. We wanted to mention the kind of this was largely observational. Um, it was retrospective mm. as well when in terms of data collection. So, do you want to chat to us before we we're going to get to the good stuff 
shortly, but yeah. the the limitations of the study, just so that we're kind of looking at it through the full lens. Um, what would you say you saw, and what would you yeah. like to see um done differently in the future? Yeah, hundred percent. So, so you're hundred percent right. Um, that, so we said the nineteen studies that were included in the systematic review, um. And the publication date range was between 2011 and 2021, so pretty recent, which is good. Yeah. Um, 13 of the studies focused on injury outcomes related to race participation. So 13 of the 19 are just injuries that happen during racing. Now, what kind of injuries are you more likely to see in races? Um, depending on your definition of what an injury is, um, that could vary. But the things that you'll see later on are things like um, blistering, uh sunburn cramping those kinds of things which happen during trail races yeah um, but they might not be reflective of injuries that happen during training for example um you know during training you might and and again it's the compounding of training that leads to those chronic type injuries so so we got to be careful first of all yeah 13 of these 19 studies were were on kind of race type injuries and then six of them were training either training alone, so just monitoring people through the training process, like as they're preparing for, for a race. I think one of them was actually preparing for the Sky Island in South Africa. That was one of Carl's yes. ones. Um, and then, um, and it could have also been preparing for uh, training and then doing racing. So again, so, you know, some, some issues there with um, what we're interpreting, but, you're right in saying that the majority of these studies were observational. So observational studies are where we as a researcher go in and we observe what is happening in the real world. Um, there might be multiple measures um, before, during and after, but it would be like quite a short period of time um, as opposed to longitudinal research which takes, which take place, takes place over months or even years. Um, or they were cross-sectional which means they literally just had one measure. Did you get an injury in a race, for example? Were we injured, yes or no? Um, and that would be a cross-sectional study. Yeah. And a lot of them were retrospective observational or retrospective cross-sectional, which means they actually went back and looked at data that was already collected, and then they kind of summarized it. These are obviously the original research articles now, the, the 19 yeah. uh, studies. They were only... I'm looking here, prospective one, I think there were three, four, yeah, there were four out of 19 that were prospective. So what I would like to see, and to answer your question, and I'm sure that um, Carl would agree, <laughs> um, would be more prospective studies and more yeah. longitudinal studies. Like, like I said with Harry, the type of study that he did. Um, but what is challenging about those types of studies is the prospective studies often rely on repeat data collection, which normally results in high levels of dropout. So if I go to you, Emily, yeah. and I say, I need you to fill in a form every week or every two weeks, how likely are you to keep doing that for a year? You're probably going <laughs> to miss a couple of those. And that's so frustrating as a, as a researcher. Yeah. You know, you've got to beg and plead to get uh, runners to, to fill out the forms. And Harry's yeah. went through that, that uh, stress. I remember. Yeah. Um, yeah. But, it, but it's also around, you know, is a your average runner well versed enough and educated enough in what an injury is? Um, have you explained yeah. it to them clearly enough? Can we can they reliably report or self-report injuries? Um, reliably means if I if I had a calf 
pain um, this week and I filled out the form and I said, I was injured. Yes, I had calf pain. When I had that same pain 40 weeks in 40 weeks time, did I also mark it as injured as injured or did I say, actually, no, it was just calf pain. That's not an injury. Yeah. And so that's typically a little bit lower in the self-report studies. Uh, and the one upshot of doing research on injuries that happen during races is that the injuries are often at the, at the race village, either at the end of the race or during the race. Yeah. Um, some runners do try and get away with injuries or they, they you know, they won't go to the tent. They'll just say, ah, whatever. And, and I'm, I'm going home now, have a beer and off I go. <laughs> um, but it, at least we know that there's a, a doctor, a medical doctor or somebody like that, who's uh, in charge of assessing whether somebody suffered an injury or not. Uh, so yeah. again, challenges, um, this, this article, hopefully with a systematic review, you capture enough information that you still get a, a clear picture of what's going on. So yes, you've got all of these kind of different moving parts that are, are affecting things, but because you've, because you've cast a wide net, because you are looking at almost 20 sources of information, you might be able to identify where there are similarities, uh, evidence that, that, um, is in agreement with with other um, original primary uh, resources or sources of information, and and then you can get a clearer picture of what those risk factors exactly are. Yeah, and I think yeah, with the with the reporting um, of what what injuries are, we spoke about. There's like a lot of uh, limitations, et cetera, et cetera. You're defining an injury, different types of things as runners mm -hmm. learn to deal with pain. Um, again, that just speaks to kind of the the complexities of of this whole story. And I'm I'm excited to see what yeah. kind of continues to come out of this. But with that said, we I mean there what is a lot to take away from something like this. And with the systematic review, in the end, it was nine nine thousand seven hundred participants that were kind of yes. across at, which, those 19 studies. Yeah. 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 Which, but that's great. Like seeing um, for repeatability, that's sometimes challenging, but seeing mm. kind of those sort of numbers, you're looking at large amounts of people. Um, yeah. As a researcher that, that is encouraging and something we want to see and to get into yeah. what, what that's was the, the benefit of, sorry. And that's the no, kind of the benefit it. of the systematic review, right. Is, yeah. is, if I had to, if I had to do an injury surveillance study, um, I might get forty or fifty people if I'm lucky. And that would be a pretty good sample. Um, but with the systematic review, we can all of a sudden access nine thousand seven hundred participants, yeah, and um, get a, a really good picture. One of the issues with with that is that eighty percent of the participants in uh, across those nineteen studies were men. So again. That yeah. just shows the, the the challenge that we have um, in in understanding female athletes better. Yeah. Um, but you know that's again as a as a systematic review, you have no way of controlling that. Of course, you know you're just yeah. relying on on what's out there, what's been published. Yeah, your eighty percent is 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 high. Yeah. Um, but yeah. to to jump into um what was found, I think this is the what are the take-homes? What are the things to look out for? We're going to actually talk about what our take-home messages is after this, but mm. um, going right back to the basics of, well, I don't know if this is this was the top one or if this is just the first one that was mentioned, but uh, an injury risk factor, one of the first ones, and I feel like there are a few lecturers at sports science who will say, I, I yeah. told you. Um, I told and that you is so. <laughs> 
and that is neglecting a warm up before running um and yes. that's this is interesting because so many people ask me if i'm running 100 miles is it really necessary for me to warm up uh yeah and yeah i mean i'm like yeah but if you if you drive an old car like i do uh the kind of picture i like to paint is the difference between a cold engine and a warm one um when you're starting a long yeah. road trip it's the same concept. Um, it's not so much about the length, but it's about your your starting position. Um, yeah. Yes. Thoughts thoughts on that, Simon. Yeah. Um, uh, this is a this is a challenging one. I mean, when I was studying sports science, it was all about dynamic warm ups, right? Like yes. you, you don't you shouldn't do static stretches while you warm <laughs> up, and um, and there's still a debate around like stretching and does it reduce injury risk, et cetera. And I think, again, I just want to highlight some of the limitations of, of this kind of research is this is a, this is a, a checkbox essentially. So that there's a statistically significant correlation. So relationship between injury, yes or no, and yeah. warm up, yes or no. Yeah right yeah so you've got these kind of discrete finite outcomes injured yes no warm-up yes no and you've literally checked that on a box on a survey do you warm up regularly before running or maybe the question is do you warm up before running um often sometimes never you know it might be three uh, discrete bins um that they've kind of selected and so yes we've, we're seeing a, a positive correlation here it's statistically significant so we know that um, it's likely has some sort of effect, you know, that there is a, some sort of relationship between these two um, uh, factors. But as many uh, lecturers will tell you in statistics, that correlation doesn't equal causation. Yeah. So just because there's a correlation doesn't mean that uh, there's a causal relationship between these two factors. And, and I said to you before we started this episode, who who are the type of people who do warm-ups before running like emily i'm sure you prescribe warm-ups to your athletes <laughs> but which of your which of your athletes are the ones who do warm-ups do you have like a picture in mind of an athlete of yours who who does their warm-up and that kind of thing can you yes. think of someone like that at Ath the moment? yeah athlete and a <laughs> athlete a yeah we love those athletes they're great but that type of athlete is probably the type of athlete who's very diligent who takes care of their body who does their stretching at night or when they wake up, who foam rolls, who regularly does recovery sessions, active recovery. Yeah. Um, it's it's that type of person. They're probably more health conscious. Do you know what I mean? Like somebody who does a warm-up. Yes, um, yes. I think is, is somebody, and this is just me, you know, this is not in the article. I'm just saying I think people who would check, yes, I do a warm-up, probably do a lot of other things that are also protective against yeah. injury. Now, now we know that warm-ups are important. Uh, warm-ups kind of get the, the heart rate up, get the, the blood pumping, which, which reduces the um, delayed oxygen uptake when you start racing, which is a, a really positive thing. Um, so you're not in oxygen deficit. Um, we also know that it kind of warms the muscles up. Um, so the contractile function will be will be better when when we start uh, the race and we we move those muscles through a full range of motion, which can help kind of negate those compounding type injuries where maybe the muscles are in like a shortened position and they're kind of repetitive um, contraction of the muscles. So there's 
There's a number of reasons why we should warm up. And there is a strong correlation here. Yeah. But, but again, we just need to take it, take it everything with, with a pinch of salt. Um, you know, I don't think that, and, and one of the, the take-home kind of messages from this systematic review was we need to do more research in these areas yeah. to understand yeah. more. So, so my suggestion would be, can we go and do a um, randomized control study so an experimental study where we randomize people into groups of warmed up versus non-warmed up, and we monitor them. So people who, who are must warm up before every run, people who don't, and then we monitor them over time. And then we can really tell whether there, there's an effect. If we've just measured them once off, yeah. you know, these cross-sectional retrospective studies, we know that there's a correlation there, but we don't know if it's a causal relationship at this point. Yeah. So that's the first one. That's the first one. <laughs> warm deal, yeah. warm ups, guys. No jokes. Yeah. Um, the second one. This is my whole. This is what I do. Nine to five people. Uh, eight, yeah. seven yeah. to yeah. five <laughs> is uh, not having a specialized running plan. So this is your your training, your coaching, the program that you're following. If it's stuck on yeah. your fridge, if you've got a coach, whatever the case is, but um having yeah. a kind of systematic way to be distributing workload if we want to be very yeah. technical about it so you've got a race yeah. it's eight months time what are you doing to prepare are you are you being like the athlete we mentioned a couple of uh, minutes ago which was doing nothing going out for a 50k run your Strava looks like the Patagonia mountain range uh or is there kind of a consistency um and yeah like a, mm. a adaptation that's being made over time um yeah yeah so that that is i think with that one it's like it's a a, again it's such a complex thing because what is a coach really good at A, a coach is really good at understanding first first of all what i said way back um that flash big fluctuations in training load are not a good thing for the athlete so they would typically uh constrain your running program much more than you would if you were just kind of doing it independently and they would say listen you we are i often have this athlete will come to me and say oh can i do this you know you've you've planned out the the week or four weeks maybe and then they come kind of last minute is it okay if i go and run this marathon with my partner on the weekend and you're like is the answer it's not okay but it's it's then about managing that so okay it's important for you to go and run with your partner so what do we need to do to reduce load elsewhere or redistribute load so that it doesn't result in this massive spike um and and likewise with with troughs you know where you have a a rest um you might have some planned rest that that a coach kind of prescribes and then they gradually bring you back up to where you were so i think when you when you get a specialized running plan you're working with a coach it's a give and take Uh, It's uh, managing together the load proactively around your schedule. And you've just got somebody there to kind of keep you in check. Um, And and that's that's where I think the money goes, really. If if you're kind of an average runner um, and you've got a coach, the the money goes into having somebody there to keep you in line, (laughs) really. Um, Because they're going to help you get to your goals. And they also... A, a good coach is also one who would probably turn around and you might come to them and say, I have a goal to run a sub 
230 marathon you never run a marathon in your life you know and your fastest 5k time is 25 minutes and you're thinking you're the next best thing in in running and then your coach will say oh well i'm not sure you know you're going to be ready in 16 weeks to run a sub yeah. 230 marathon yeah. um so so it's a bit of bargaining it's reasoning and the coach has the experiential knowledge to kind of know what's what's um realistic um and, and again that's why i think you're seeing this correlation is because all i've done when i answered that survey was i checked that i've got a i checked yes do i have a specialized running plan or coach yes and then all of those other things are happening in the background yeah which you, you don't get in the survey but you just get the checkbox right yeah yeah so that's all that's yeah a good one number two someone keeping you <laughs> so get shape. a coach yeah <laughs> we we know two coaches at least between the two of yeah. us um and so my the third one is my favorite one um yeah i don't know why I you knew i'd like this one this. When you yeah. saw <laughs> and that is training on on asphalt which is just a fancy word for the road um that yes is so, so get, this get this trail runners the one of the number one <laughs> risk factors for you getting an injury as a trail runner is running on the road you yes. see i told you emily is bad yeah. for you i'm it's not convinced <laughs> that the, that allergy is real it needs to be added something that you can be medicated yeah. for so road road allergy and again i think with that one so a couple of things on on road running it's um the running gait um, is a lot more consistent on road. So if there are any um, niggles, let's call them niggles, potential chronic injuries that, that might be rearing their heads, um, that those might be compounded on the road. Um, you, you definitely see more asymmetry in gaits in trail running. So lots of variation, dodging things, jumping over rocks, you know, those kinds of things, which... Yeah which creates kind of a, a change in the running gait cycle. But also what happens on, when you run on road is you run faster. And typically yes. if you're doing something at a, at a high intensity, the force of contraction of muscular contraction is higher. The ground reaction forces acting through the, the lower limb are greater. And so those things can comp compound and exacerbate injuries. So I think that's probably what what we're seeing there yeah um, and i'm just going to stick with my mantra i did a long run today and i did not do it on the road even though i'm training for <laughs> yeah yeah it's like <laughs> Simon, it's like i've got it done yeah it's like um, yeah. having exposure right amount right time very important probably an episode for another time but road runners we still oh, the, rea the reality is if you if you're training for a road race you need to run on the road yes. um, you prepare yeah. for the, the specific demands but if you're a trail runner, um, you know, try to keep the majority of your running on trail. Yeah. Then the fourth, fourth one, this is a super interesting one. This is like a buzz. It's not a buzzword. It's like a trend that people are doing. I've actually, one of my athletes who's listening to this, he got a message about the sneaky second session that popped in this week. And I was like, please don't do that. Yeah. And that is double training days. Um, yeah, this is a big thing. We can get into it. Um, we're not saying never ever do this, mm. um, but it's just the the kind of percentage of athletes who need to be doing double training days. Yeah. Like if you have to think about if you're that person, you're probably not that person. And yeah, yeah, to to kind of cram volume in to to be, yeah, to think that 
strategically splitting load can be a really good thing between morning and evening, long run, especially if, say, return from an injury, you're trying to get mileage in within reason and and and. But having double run days or double threshold days, which is a massive thing that's coming in at the moment where that's two workouts at high intensity. Yes, Simon, it's coming for for all of us. (laughs) Um, So that seems to be, yeah, an indicator for for injury. And that's that's pretty self-explanatory. Yeah, Yeah, and I think that comes as we spoke to the acute loading, acute and chronic loading. You know, what are you doing? What can you handle in a 24-hour phase versus a seven-day cycle? Um, And to go from beginning, being a beginner to double loading is just asking for trouble. Well, that's the thing. I think, you know, where does the logic of double training sessions come from? It, It comes from trying to squeeze out as much volume as possible um in your in your training plan and we know that training volume is critically important for endurance performance um you know time and time again people that do high volumes run faster um it's just the reality but they didn't get there overnight um so do you yes. need to do do you do, do you need to do a double training session if you're not training every day of the week um I, I'm not convinced. I would say first get to a point where you're training every day of the week um, and then say, right, yeah. do I, now that I am training every day of the week, do I need to add on more load? Yes or no. There, there's some evidence to yeah. suggest that, that that splitting training is, can be beneficial. Um, you know, you get a kind of that um, Venus pump action twice in, in a day. So you get kind of uh, residual benefits from um, from training after training has ceased. Um, and that then happens twice in a day instead of uh, just once. So I'm, I'm not saying that you should never do it. I would agree with you on, on that, Emily. But it's about progressively yeah. building a, a, a base of strength, biomechanical strength, so that your body can handle double training sessions. Yeah. Yeah. More on that later. We're gonna we're gonna offend a lot of people when not if when we have that podcast episode because it is a bit of a trend. Um, but I'm keen. To yeah, I'm that. really keen to learn more yeah. about that. Yeah, <laughs> yeah, coming soon. Um, and then the last one is physical labor occupations. Um, and again, this is a job that requires you to be on your feet. Yeah. Um, for large amounts of the day to be lifting or carrying heavy stuff. Um, just any sort of strain on your body i think the watches these days can they measure stress throughout your day and if you've got kind of a high high stress reading because of the type of movement you're doing the time on legs so if you think of somebody who farming if i think of someone like my dad he's he's on his feet for large um kind of periods of time he's moving heavy stuff he's driving big pieces of equipment and then to come home and do a hectic session or a long run is sometimes a challenge for him and it's just managing um yeah so how he's feeling day to day keeping track of kind of that the reporting that's coming in from him uh of this is how i'm feeling yeah. as opposed to his uh, as we spoke about the physiological readiness uh it all, all kind of physiological signs might point green in terms of the session will fit but the feeling of i've done a lot today uh, to load on top of that, not always, not always wise. Yeah, I think the physical labor one is an interesting one. Um, certainly, I mean, all stress is stress on the body. So, you know, f- physical labor is still stress on the body um, and might exacerbate any any 
chronic injury mechanisms if it's if you're doing physical labor that's similar or compounds your type of activity um so again that's that's one that that i've seen in other uh other sport types so not just running that physical labor is typical that's probably why they asked the question in the first place on on their surveys people who are doing this this research because there's, there's some kind of general consensus that it can enhance or exacerbate risk but i've also seen a lot of people yeah. say you know sitting at your desk all day increases your risk of injury um your hip flexors yeah. are in a shortened yeah. position and whatever you know you hear all the stuff from your biokineticist that you have to go to far too often because you're injured all the time um, yeah. <laughs> so because you because you didn't listen to this podcast <laughs> <laughs> yeah um um, Emily, just yeah. there, there were a couple others. So I know you you focus on the main ones. Um, I just wanted to point to one or two others. Um, and and one that they found the correlation was with was with athletes with higher running experience. Um, and again, that kind yes. of showed that it for me it's such a paradox because earlier I said you know that can also be a preventative factor um being experienced yeah lots of kind of building those foundations over time but like we said i, th I think yeah. what's maybe happening there is that athletes who they would probably fill out on a survey and say right my experience is x many years so that's how normally experience is measured how many years have you been running for zero to one you know one to two yeah. or, or two to three or whatever and um, and probably what you find is that you know, runners who've run more have also, because they've done more thousands of hours of training, they're more likely to have been injured. So we're not saying you can't pre prevent injury, you can only reduce the risk. So it yeah. might be a case there of these more experienced runners are, they've also just suffered injuries more so than, than beginner runners, but the injuries are still coming for the beginner runners, if that makes sense. So that's a, that was yeah. a bit of a paradoxical yeah. one for me to, to read um yeah uh, i think it could be also yeah. if they they take more risks in training and racing um more willing to run through pain something they used to uh that can develop into a chronic injury or even if you look at racing people who have got more race experience are more likely to take risks within an event um yes. yeah, based on previous experience and wanting to change their position, go for the win. I mean, if you've ever watched any downhill segment on the, the Golden Trail series, it's yeah. it's the Wild West out there. Uh, well, so well, correlated like with that, that could... correlated with that was um, another one that they found was that um, there was a correlation between people who scored higher on something called the PAD22 questionnaire, which is the propensity to sports accident questionnaire, which basically is like, are you somebody who's high, who scores highly in sensation seeking and um, that takes lots of risks, yes. that has a high degree of perceived competence um, and has a, a low perception of risk and high in, in competitiveness. So if you're somebody who scored high in that survey, you're also more likely to be injured. And, you know, that's probably due to taking um, lots of, of risks with, um, is it, I think it's Sarah or Sara Alonso, somebody that I've been following on the World yes, Trail yes. Series circuit. And I was thinking she, of her. The amount of time she's gone down in these races with, you know, yeah. crazy injuries because she's really just screaming down these mountains. Um, so, yeah, yeah. The, the higher running experience, you know, could be a confounding kind of uh, factor there. Also, then athletes with, with yeah. higher running experience are also running faster, which goes back to that 
you know, yes. the high velocity, yes. high force of contraction. Um, and then the, the last. Yeah. You've never seen. Yeah somebody fall that hard and keep running yeah then sorry go go check her out yeah exactly (laughs) um so yeah and then and then um i just think the last thing to maybe note was that within races specifically um that some of the common injuries were sunburn um so (laughs) that was defined as an injury um and uh fair fair skin yes it says for people with low skin phototypes (laughs) Uh, i laughed at that i was like you you took offense to that um and then prior (laughs) history of cramping so in other words people who typically report of cramping are more likely to suffer from cramps and and again cramps are Mm. the, the only thing that you can do to stop the cramps from happening is slow down <laughs> um you know there's no yeah. there's, we lie next to the trail exactly so again i think that speaks to who are people who are more likely to suffer from cramp um it's more likely to be somebody who's not prepared not adequately prepared for the demands of the activity um and so that's yeah. more likely to be a lower level runner yes a, a, a elite runner can go out too fast and they can suffer from cramp but you're more likely to see that in um, people who, you know, people who persistently, consistently cramp in races are probably going out too hard um, or, or not able to, yeah. to meet the demands of, of the race, uh, the cutoffs or whatever. Um, and so they need to to do some more training. And, yeah. and the last one was on blister, blistering. So in the races, obviously they found that like yes. blistering is just, you know, it happens. I can remember Jana finishing Skyrun. And the blisters, I thought, I'll, I'll oh. never do an ultra. Never do an ultra. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, for, for those of you who don't think blistering is an injury, sure. you've never had a real blister then. I mean, um, it's, it's in, in a race, yeah. it's so debilitating. I mean, if, you, if you've if you got bad yeah. blistering, you are just, you know, your whole race can be can be thrown. Um, so, yeah. Yeah. So, yeah, these, I mean, these are kind of a few of the things that, that were summarized to look out for. I fi- I think they're diverse. It's very really interesting. I'm sure that runners and listeners will be able to identify with at least one yeah. of these things. And maybe if you're experiencing niggles, unexplained axle pains, to kind of take a good look at this this list um, and to be honest with yourself about maybe which of the ones you're not necessarily adhering to. Um, yeah, and I think the we one of the things Simon and I chatted about was the the range of injury incidents um and prevalence i think from the different articles we saw um mm. some of the range what we're talking about is how, i mean how often they occur so one of them was i think was it 0.7 yes. kind of injuries per 1000 hours um of yeah. running all the way up to 61.2% which is really a lot and i think a lot of that would speak to the the range of what is included uh, in the study so it's the sub ultra marathon the ultras you know it's the distance range is so much i think that could be one of the reasons why we see something like that and also the the type of study design is it observational cross-sectional retrospective prospective and the definition of injury that they use because some studies really are quite like they're quite like mild and meek mannered about what an injury is um (laughs) you have a a sniffle if yes you're injured kind of thing um so you see these ranges of 0.7 i think if you see an article that that reports 0.7 injuries per thousand hours of running they probably got a really hard line on on what an injury is um 
versus yeah. one that's 61.2 that 61.2 injuries per thousand hours of it's is high. really high i mean that it's it's crazy high um and so you know that's much higher than some of your what people typically consider to be high risk sports you know contact sports rugby and yeah. american football and stuff you know that's higher than than what you would typically see in those sports so and and again yeah. i think running i don't know maybe people give running a bad rap for like oh it's you know it's just running it's so simple but it's that repetitive nature of, of the sport that really makes it so demanding on the body yeah and i think take home message simon just as we wrap up um so much of what we talk about is like the, the slow and steady process mm. of getting used to running ultra running um whether that is exposing yourself to a kind of progressive overload not jumping into stuff um distributing your training evenly doing something like warming up doing the recovery kind of the the small not fun um elements of of ultra running avoiding stuff like double training days getting a speaking to a coach speaking to a professional etc cetera, etc cetera. and i think yeah, for me, the the take home message of all of this when it comes to injury is Taryn Funny Cat was, I think, my second guest ever on this podcast, and she's a physio. And one of the things that she said that really stuck with me is, in terms of injuries, is listen to the whisper before it becomes a shout. Mm. Um, and that that for me, if you're applying that to how you're feeling after a double training day, yeah. your your kind of acute or chronic training load versus you know the difference of how you feel if you warmed up or didn't there's so much that if we just are a bit more kind of intuitive that we could avoid um so yeah I think for me it's just being sensible again about your progression I feel like so much of this can be avoided um even something like the sunburn and the blisters uh it's yeah get get used to it to an extent but also just be strategic yeah. um so yeah I, I mean what I mean what is your your take I, on? I really love what um what you just mentioned, what Taryn said. Um, I think learning to listen to your body and understand your body is something that, unfortunately, there is a bit of trial and error that goes to it. Um, I would say one of my take-home messages to to runners would be, don't don't lose hope if you get an injury. Um, it happens to yes. to most runners. Um, you probably are consuming a lot of social media and, you know, Strava and all the stuff of people who maybe don't get injured and look like they run injury free and it's all, you know, uh, happy days all the time. Um, and that's certainly not the case. Uh, so don't feel alone yeah. um, if you do suffer from, from an injury. Make sure that you do the protective things, the things that are going to kind of help you um, reduce your your risk. And you mentioned things like warming up, uh, things like cross-training, things like being consistent with stretching, mobility, uh, foam rolling, massage, whatever it is that you need to do. Um, I believe in those things um, personally. Um, yeah. And then number one is 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 manage your workload proactively um yeah whether that's working with a coach or whether that's just being smart about how you structure your training to avoid kind of massive spikes big spikes or, or also big troughs so periods of time where you do no training 
Um, there are times where, you, where your body needs to rest and recover. And, and after that, make sure you progressively bring it back up to, to where it was. Um, so those kinds of things yeah. are, are important. Um, and uh, But I think there is, uh, I see a lot of people really struggle with injuries, like lots of runners, especially trail runners, the sense of identity is quite closely intertwined with, with running. And it can be really kind of traumatic to suffer from a, a consistent niggle or injury so um you're not alone uh feel free to reach out to emily or i if you're struggling with an injury and uh, maybe we can help um, <laughs> yeah that's yeah yeah um simon very cool i'm excited about more systematic reviews yes. nicole uh thanks for your contribution we'll be putting all of this in in the show notes um and again this whole trail science thing it's about looking at you know what are things that you can avoid in terms of just having understanding or knowledge about something how to unpack research again everything that we're chatting about here is guided by peer-reviewed research it's not just um kind of our anecdotes we we are we are intentionally trying to figure this out through a scientific lens so yeah we'd also love to hear from you guys what do you want to see this year um i mean pretty much anything running related we're excited about but if there's something specific that you feel like is missing we are happy to dive into it yeah. and, and nerd out so let us know um again contact info will be in the show notes but simon thank you this was really cool pleasure i'm hoping that people can reduce their injury risk uh and just kind of take note of these things as we are about as we are fast approaching the kind of start of the trail running season yeah. and the new year and all the best to all the, um, the listeners so yeah. on their trail running goals for the year May they all come true and yeah. may you not suffer any injuries. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> and may you not run on the road. Um, <laughs> um, but yeah, cool. Simon, thanks for your time. Um, we will be back in the next few weeks with our next Trail Science episode. There you have it, folks. Another trail science episode with Simon Duvall from Rooted in Dirt, getting stuck into the injury risk factors, what to know, what to consider when approaching your your training and racing. And yeah, once again, just coming back to the basics of having a good program laid out, doing your, your research, knowing what you're getting yourself into, looking into, should I do a warm up? Should I not? Um, yeah, how to best prep for what you can encounter on race day and avoid things like cramping and blisters. So yeah, I hope you guys enjoyed this episode. We'll be back in a couple of weeks with our next trail science um, episode. And yeah, for now, I'll see you all back here next week for our regular trail culture. Thanks, guys.